Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members, like Chris and me, are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. Tom, we've got a great show today, and our guest will be a very special expert on, guess what, health insurance, Mr. Kevin Burns. But before we get to Kevin, let's look at some recent news items. First, I have good news. The good news is that in early October, the 39th World Medical Assembly met in Madrid, Spain, and two countries put forth a resolution before them, these countries being our northern neighbor Canada and the Dutch. And those countries asked that euthanasia be no longer considered unethical. Tom, that's not the good news. Uh, No, but the good (laughs) news is what happened. Uh, In fact, the resolution was withdrawn because of a lack of support among other countries. Isn't that amazing? It was wonderfully amazing because so much of the news we hear in the United States is that, oh, this is just a juggernaut and it's, it's coming sooner or later. Uh, but apparently not so. In fact, other countries like uh, Brazil, a, a huge Catholic country, uh, said if the doctor is prepared not only to cure but also to kill the ethics of medical practice— and the trust that the patient must have in his doctor will be very battered. Uh, They said all the medical associations in the Asia-Pacific and Israel, including Australia, New Zealand, China, and Japan, who I wouldn't have expected to have been against euthanasia, were opposed, as were unanimously our good friends in Africa. That is good news. That's the good news part. That is the good news part. Uh, The bad news, sadly, is that on our own shores uh, here, the American Academy of Family Physicians, which makes up the largest single chunk of the American Medical Association membership, voted to go against AMA policy to be against physician-assisted suicide and against euthanasia. You know, I wonder if our listeners appreciate that the overwhelming majority of their family physicians are members, are dues-paying members of the American Academy of Family Physicians. But that doesn't mean that their doctors voted for this. Absolutely. This was the representatives in that assembly there. And to pass something that was opposed to what the AMA says, their statutes and bylaws say they have to have a two-thirds majority. And they got over two-thirds of physicians to say that they would come to something called engaged neutrality with regard to physician-assisted suicide. And by the way, they want to play with language. They want to call it MADE, medical assistance or medical aid in dying. Engaged neutrality. That's like saying, yes, I've decided to take a neutral position on child abuse. Or torture. (laughs) Uh, How how well would that go over? I I don't understand it. It really represents a sad turn of events. And for physicians listening that are family physicians, they need to take a long, conscious-based decision before they write that dues check to an organization that may not be representing their beliefs. It's so sad. How many of you listeners want to go to a physician who would be willing to, to help you die? Not to die well through natural courses, but to, to speed it up, to give you something to make you die. I think it's also sad, and I wonder what the psychology of it is, that the countries where suicide is the highest, where the gross national product and the average income is the highest, are also those calling for euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. But the poorest countries, they're not the ones looking at this at all. I don't think that's a coincidence. You don't? (laughs) Well, you're a smart guy, Chris. (laughs) So from that good news, bad news, we just go on to news news. And the second article I have, published September 11th in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, by a Dr. Victor Fuchs, and he's a Ph.D. doctor, not an M.D. doctor. He works in economics, the des- dismal science at Stanford. But he asks a good question. Is U.S. medical care inefficient? And when he looks at things like this, he he shows that the spending for medical care per person is twice in the United States what it is in the United Kingdom. 
and he points out that the life expectancy in the United Kingdom is three years longer than the life expectancy in the United States. So why are we spending twice as much per person and living less? So he looks at two terms, micro-efficiency and macro-efficiency or micro-inefficiency and macro-inefficiency. So micro-inefficiency would be, is what is happening in our office when, when a doctor and a patient see each other, is that being done efficiently? And then macro is, what is the system doing it? Are they using resources wisely? And, and the bottom, and well, he points out a couple of things. Maybe there's improved quality of life in the United States, even if we're not living longer. For instance, there's an 80% higher rate of knee replacements in the United States. Costs a lot of money. Maybe more people in the UK are suffering with knee problems, or maybe we're just clumsier. I don't know. Uh, he also points out that 70% of Americans are overweight or obese. Only 54% are in the other 10 wealthiest countries. Well, he goes to show that uh, actually in the United States, there's an ac a lower mortality rate for those 30 days after a heart attack. And in your field, Chris, there's lower obstetric trauma per 100 deliveries in the United States than the UK. And he comes to the conclusion that what we're doing in our offices with patients is at least as efficient economically is what doctors in the UK are doing. On the micro level. On the micro level. So when you see your doctor, you're getting at least as good a care, we think, as you would if you were in the UK. But he thinks there's a misallocation of medical resources. For instance, there's 44% more MRIs done per person in, in the US, 32% more C-sections. That probably doesn't surprise you, Chris, does it? Not in the least. Not in the least. No, versus the other 10 wealthiest countries. And interestingly, in other countries, there are more doctor visits per person than in the U.S. and longer hospital stays per patient. You know, it's interesting. He didn't quote, and I thought he would when we first started reading this, how, how abysmal the infant mortality is in the United States compared to other countries, despite all of these findings on our spending. It yes. Really, it really is frustrating to read those numbers uh, and realize we experience it. Yet at the same time, I know we've all seen people from other countries flock here when they have serious diseases. So it's not an easy answer, is it? it? It's not an easy answer. I remember when I was at Mayo Clinic in medical school, I mean, they had suites in the Kaler Hotel where the, the crown family of Saudi Arabia would stay or leaders of other countries would come regularly because of the care that they got there. So they make the comparison that the U.S. is more high-tech and these other wealthy countries are more high-touch. You know, the more visits, the more days in the hospital. So there is a macro-level problem. He doesn't go in to solve it. He just points it out. So those are my two news items. And Chris, you've got even more news. Yeah, this is a follow-up port of sorts from another show when we were talking about some of the abortion laws and the way they were working their way through the appellate courts. Uh, and we talked uh, a few shows ago about Louisiana law. Uh, and this report just recently came from the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, just uh, a few days ago ruled that the Louisiana law that required abortion providers to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals does not violate women's constitutional abortion rights. Now, that's confusing because an almost identical law was stricken down by a different Circuit Court of Appeals in Texas. Yes. Where Texas tried to require the very same thing, but that was considered to be unconstitutional, posing too great a burden on both the abortion providers and subsequently too great of a limitation on those women seeking abortion. So as I think we've seen, there's a different interpretation in many of these similar cases based on which court of appeals it makes its way to. And generally, when there's a disagreement between courts of appeals... It goes to the Supreme Court. It goes to the Supreme Court. Yeah, they go on to say here, uh, in, in their opinion, the majority said that Louisiana's law does not impose the same substantial burden on women as did the Texas law. Now, opponents of the Louisiana law have argued it's going to make it very difficult or impossible for women to obtain abortions. The supporters are saying, hey, abortion physicians need to be able to admit patients to a hospital just within 30 miles in case of medical complications. So it probably comes as no surprise to our listeners. The story's not over, and this law will probably make its way, along with several others, to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
these days, that means it's going to be a very interesting Supreme Court season, probably next season. And you have even more. (laughs) Uh, We'll move on to weight loss. It just seems like we're talking a lot about weight loss. (laughs) We're going to talk a lot about nutrition. We've got some follow-up from another show that we did uh, with an obesity expert. But this one really caught my attention. This came from the journal Cancer, which is the journal of the American Cancer Society. And it looked at weight loss in women after menopause and the first three years after menopause and their risk of breast cancer. And this is, as far as I know... Are you going to make our women listeners happy or sad? I think I'm going to make them happy. Good, good. Because we're going to offer them some control. <laughs> now, I don't know about your wife, but anyway... <laughs> Which we're not allowed to talk about that's on right. this show. We digress. <laughs> uh, this study used uh, 61,000 women in the Women's Health Initiative, and it studied them in those first three years after menopause. And it looked at women who lost weight, which is considered 5% or more, versus women whose weight stayed stable, versus women who gained 5% or more. And would you believe that those women who lost 5% or more reduced their chance of breast cancer by 12%? Wow. Now, that's a dramatic, that may not sound like a huge number, but in something that's relatively rare, fortunately, breast cancer in the postmenopausal years, a 12% reduction is dramatic. So simply losing 5% of your body weight after menopause could dramatically reduce your is chance of breast cancer. Is that because you're storing less estrogen in the fat? You know, it's, a, it's an observational study. They don't have a causation. Interestingly, to your point, in those women that gained 5%, they didn't have an overall cancer risk increase, but if they got cancer, they were more likely to get the very dreaded so-called triple, triple negative, negative breast cancer, yeah. meaning there may be a hormonal component, and that's where you would think about obesity, yes. fatty tissues, and estrogens. Yes. But it really was fascinating. If we needed another reason to think about nutrition and weight loss, there we have it. Thank you, Chris. That was practical. It gives women something else to do. And before our break, I'll pose our medical trivia question of the day. Epinephrine. Yes, it's a common additive in anesthetics that are injected to numb you before something is done on your skin. Why is it done? Done? It shrinks blood vessels, and this has two beneficial effects for you and the doctor. Number one, you will bleed less because the blood vessels are narrower. And number two, the numbness lasts longer. Because it, good things. It, holds the, it holds the anesthetic right there in place by constricting the blood vessels. You got it. In fact, the skin kind of looks white instead of pink where it's injected. So the question comes, if you know a little bit of Greek, you will know that the name of the drug, epinephrine, tells us where in the body it is naturally made. And if you know the other common name for epinephrine, which comes from a Latin root, you will know exactly where this chemical is made in the human body. So, the two-part question, what is the other name for epinephrine, and where in the human body is it naturally produced? We'll be back with more on Dr. Doctor after the break. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. And Tom, we're joined by a special guest from right here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Mr. Kevin Burns. Now, Kevin is a benefit consultant with the DeHaze Group here in Fort Wayne. He's got a long list of educational accomplishments. But Kevin, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Kevin, let's go back to ancient history, like, like 100 years ago. And at that time, health insurance didn't exist. Uh, In fact, there were a number of states that tried to pass health insurance laws, and they all failed. So how did patients get medical care before there was health insurance? Yeah, well, we can trace trace accident insurance all the way back to the 1850s. So there was actually an insurance company called Franklin Health Assurance of Massachusetts who would sell sickness policies for the railroad and for steamboat. Uh, Now, prior to 1850s, I'm sure it was a bartering Uh uh, instance. Uh, I'll give you a chicken. I want two chickens. (laughs) Two chickens. Or a chicken and two eggs. I don't know. (laughs) Exactly. For for help and and Mm -hmm. surgery and or medication. But we can trace it back to Franklin Health Assurance at least to the 1850s. But that still wasn't a majority of the population. No, it really wasn't. It it wasn't until the 1920s um, where we actually had some hospitals starting to offer services to indi- to individuals on a pre-pay- on a prepaid basis. So that's really 1920s is really the, the the start of the modern era of of health insurance. 
Now, and then is, the, is that I'm the sorry. same time that this idea, or maybe I should say, when did this idea that I have a job, I work for the railroad, I work for something else, and somehow health insurance is part of that job? Yeah, really, the first group policy was in 1929 by a, um, a group of teachers in Dallas that mm-hmm. basically made a deal with the hospital system there uh, to provide health insurance. So that was the first one in 1929. But back in the late 19th century, employers and unions, fraternal groups, uh, maybe similar to the Knights of Columbus who did it with life insurance, did something called establishing sickness funds. And that if somebody in their group got sick, then they would pay for the health care needs of that person. This sounds like what we call today health sharing. Do you think this is a, a predecessor of health insurance, or is this different than health insurance? And if so, how? No, I think it's very similar and, um, to, to health insurance today. In fact, I think it's coming back full circle as we have multiple health sharing uh, plans out there right now. Um, in fact, there is a Catholic one called Solidarity Health that is a Catholic uh, sharing health plan as well. So I think it's coming back full circle. I think uh, the difference is that health sharing is not insurance. There's not uh, a cap or there, or there could be a cap on, on, on certain services versus health insurance uh, as it is today is just unlimited. So there you mean can be insurance plans can be unlimited. I thought many of them had caps. No, there was a, there was a law passed uh, back uh, when the ACA started that there, it's unlimited uh, amount. You can't you can't put a cap on a uh, on a person. So it's it's unlimited. So I'll be honest, I didn't realize that. I didn't know that either. So now under ACA Accountable Care Act, also Affordable called, Care Act, Affordable Care, sorry, also called Obamacare sometimes. So there's there's no longer a lifetime limit of a certain million that you could pay out for an illness or a condition or no, something? No, it, it was a big change. When I first started in the business, there was usually a $2 million right. lifetime maximum, and, and that was removed. So that's part of some of this increase in cost is that um, there's no cap. Oh, wow. well, that's interesting. In 1920, believe it or not, the American Medical Association opposed legislation calling for compulsory health insurance because they said it would interfere with the doctor patient relationship. And that was based on their early experience with workers' compensation plans. Do you think that this fear of 100 years ago has borne true that health insurance can interfere with the doctor-patient relationship? Absolutely. It's still there today. I think there's a, there's a huge balance between managed care and managing the patient. So I think absolutely that's still a fear. You know, it's interesting. I'm not making this up. Driving here, I got a phone call from an angry patient. And, and she's yelling at me, but I'm old enough to realize that she's not really mad at me. She's really mad at her insurance company because they're saying the thing that she wants me to do, the procedure that she wants me to do, is not covered. Um, and that it, it's not going to be paid for by her insurance. And so she wants me to do something. And I'm, I, I feel bad for her, but I'm trying to explain I'm not in charge. It's your insurance company. It's between you and them. But I think as practicing physicians, we often find ourselves, you know, knowingly or otherwise, right in the middle of that conflict between the patient and the insurance company. I got a call last week because a patient wants me to write off his cancer surgery I did because his insurance company ended up not paying for it. And my question is, why should I not get paid for curing your cancer. <laughs> but yes, they they can't see the insurance company. They can see us. Well, uh, a last history question then is why is health insurance so intricately linked to one's job today? Is it true in other countries? Is this a good thing, a bad thing, or just a thing? Yeah, I don't think it's true in other countries, although in some I've talked to other uh, Canadian uh, counterparts where they do, you know, they do have universal health coverage up there. They they still sell uh, gap coverage up there to fill in the oh. fill in the uh, the places where the government does not pay. Um, and and employers pay for that as well. I, I think it really comes down to competition. Um, why a benefit plan is still in place today. Why does an employer have it? And especially in today's world where the job market is uh, so competitive that this is still considered um, a retention and a hiring tool 
to to keep employees, uh, to make to keep them happy, to keep them at your job. So it's a competition thing, for sure. And you know, it, it goes beyond medical. I mean, you, you look at dental and vision, and, and believe it or not, the millennials that are coming up, the fastest growing benefit is pet insurance. What? Yes. So by employers, by employers offering it to millennials, and so it's not stopping with just medical. So I think this competition thing about keeping good employees is really why it continues. It's to another be form of compensation. Yes. But yeah. it really came I read during World War II there were wage limits that the government imposed. You couldn't pay people a certain over a certain amount. So what some employers did is they offered health insurance as a pre-tax thing to keep. But that is going on now whether we 70 plus years after World War II and it's it hasn't left. I don't think it's going away. So, Kevin, I'm sure you probably find that people are mad at you because they think you're the insurance company. I am the Grim Reaper. <laughs> <laughs> but but help, us, help us understand what it might be like to be on that side of the table if you're the insurance company. How do they see this? I'm going to promise to pay if someone gets sick and needs the money. How in the world do they build a business around that? How can they, be, how can they stay in business? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, Chris, because it's a our our insurance is very emotional. It's about the the person, you know. If you're buying car insurance, it's you're buying insurance on a on a thing. You're, you're buying insurance on a house. You're it's a thing, but here you're buying insurance for your children, for your wife, your husband. That's a very emotional thing, and um, this. The insurance companies um, have to balance that piece of covering a person at the same time trying to co- control cost on the on the on the other side. So it it's a tough balance. Uh, some do it well, some do it bad. Uh, our industry is 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 not quite there yet technology wise. And we're just we're a clunky industry right now. Interesting. Not not co- not as changed by technology maybe as medicine especially. But I, the first thing that popped into my head was banking, you know, which doesn't look like banking looked 50, 75 years ago. Insurance looks a lot like it looked 50 to 75 years yeah, ago. There's a lot of friction in the system where you lose a lot of the efforts. Well, let's move on and do some vocabulary testing. Because I know whenever I try to understand... Onomatopoeia. <laughs> Chris, do you remember that? No, not Whenever not I random. try to understand my health insurance <laughs> or if my employees are coming to me asking me questions, they get very frustrated. They want to know what's a copay and what's coinsurance and deductible and family deductible, personal deductible, all of these terms. Now, Tom and I are very guilty of clinging to our, our jargon and our lingo in medicine, but I think the insurance guys do it too. But walk do. us through some of those more common terms that you think people get confused by. Sure. If you think about a copay, a copay is a flat dollar amount that a, uh, that a patient would pay for a service, um, an office visit copay. You would pay $25, and then the rest of the visit is paid at 100%. So it's a flat dollar amount. And is it legal or illegal for a physician to write that off? In other words, not charge the copay. We're putting you on the spot. I am not a tax (laughs) consultant. Uh, Let me put that. Okay, because I've been told it's illegal for us to... Uh, to do that, you but know, my, I don't know the my answer. My understanding is it's it's uh, it's a violation of your contract with the insurance company in some cases to do that on a on a systematic basis. Right. Uh, this person, that person, just because, just because. But if you say I'm going to always write off the copay, that would be a violation of the contract with okay. the carrier in most cases. That makes I, sense. I think. So Excellent co- answer. So, oh, good. <laughs> Heaven forbid I've set myself up as the insurance guy. Yeah. <laughs> so what is coinsurance? You know, coinsurance typically comes into play with facility charges, but it's the sharing of a cost between the insurance company and the employee. So we'll say that you have a $1,000 bill at a hospital and the, you have an 80-20 coinsurance. That means that the insurance company would pay 80% of that bill you would pay 20% of that bill. So you're sharing in the cost of a particular service. Now, this one really gets me. I cannot understand the difference, or I get it mixed up. I have a deductible, but then my family has a deductible because we have a family plan. How, do you, how does that work? What's the difference? 
Yeah, so there's always a, a uh, individual deductible, we'll call it, um, and we'll use the number $1,000. So if, if it's $1,000, an individual pays $1,000, and then coinsurance would kick in. If you have a family, there we'll call it a family cap, if that helps you. Uh. So the family, if one person in the family met their personal deductible, that person would go into their coinsurance. But the family would never pay more than two or sometimes three deductibles in a family. So if you had seven people in your family and one person hit their deductible and then another person hit their personal deductible, the rest of the family would not have to meet their personal deductible. Including further co-pays? Well, depending on how the plan is set up, that mm. could be. But sometimes the co-pays do go beyond the deductible. Okay. Well, this is fascinating. We're going to have more after the break here on Dr. Doctor with Kevin Burns and health insurance. We're back in the studio with Kevin Burns enjoying our discussion on health insurance. Kevin, something that has become more and more popular in the United States and even has just come to my medical group for our employees and for my family are health savings accounts. So I understand there's also something called a flexible savings account. Can you tell our our listeners what these two beasts are and what the differences are? Yeah, if you line these up side by side, they'd be very similar except for a few exceptions. One, what's eligible to be paid out of a health savings account and a flexible spending account is the exact same. Good. So whatever's eligible is can be paid out of either account. Two, you both they both usually present a debit card that you can use at a pharmacy or an office setting. They usually provide you with a debit card. Uh, three, um, they're both pre-tax benefits. So yes. uh, not only can an employer put money in them, but an employee can set aside additional money on a pre-tax basis and um, pay uh, medical expenses out of that. The biggest difference is that in a flexible spending account, any money that is in the account, at the end of that plan year, if you don't use it, you lose it. Ah. So it typically goes back to the employer to pay for the cost of providing a flex plan. Whereas the health savings account is owned by the holder or the employee. So any money that an employer puts in there and any money that an employee puts in there at the end of the plan year, which is calendar year for HSAs, you get to keep that. It rolls over to the next year. You can again put more money into that health savings account. Um, And so it's a little bit uh, more uh, pro-employee. Uh, on the health savings account because you're in control of it. You're in control of uh, what you use it for. And then on the flex, it's more uh, employer-centric. Yeah, it sounds like on the HSA, the health savings account, it really would uh, favor young people who are relatively healthy, not necessarily likely to use that. uh, And it's just going to sit there and grow year after year, which could turn into quite a bit of savings. Can they ever take that money and use it for non-medical things at some point? They can use that money. Again, they're in control of the account. But if you use the money on a non-medical situation, there are potential penalties. Uh, because you didn't pay tax on it. Correct. Uh, and you would have to pay taxes. Uh, the government has a way of getting its due. Correct. So the only time that you don't have a penalty on a non-medical eligible expense is once you reach age 65, then you can pull the money out and use it. But you're taxed on that money. You just aren't penalized after age 65. A nice thing about having that debit card is that um, I, I've i used it for things that a health insurance plan wouldn't cover, but yet are health-related, your kids' orthodontics. Uh, I've been in an airport, and I've had a headache, and I went and bought some Motrin in uh, a drugstore there with my HSA card. And I'm told that's legitimate. We can use it for our, our kids or our own uh, vision, our, our glasses. So that's really nice. But there is a, a limit annually on how much we can put into that, isn't there? 
There is. There's a um, a single. If you are a single, there's a limit that you can put in, and then as a family, there's a, a limit. And then there is additional money if you're over age 55. Very similar to a 401k, you mm-hmm. can put additional money in. And it's interesting not to get on a tangent, but this is uh, some legislation that's being looked at in 2019. I was just going to ask you: Is um, this a political policy it, kind of? It is, and I actually think that uh, you might see some compromise here between the Republicans and Democrats on there. The Republicans want to increase the amount of money that you can put into a health savings account. Uh, The Democrats would like to make all plans eligible for health savings accounts. So right now, there's only certain plans that are eligible based on some criteria by the government of when you could open up a health savings account. So that almost I think, sounds like the potential for agreement. That's uh, I, it's unbelievable. That could, <laughs> it's wonderful. That could be landmark. So now, that would is, be very interesting if that happened. Once you're on Medicare at age 65, is there such a thing as a health savings account anymore? You, you can keep. Remember, you can keep whatever money oh, that's sure. in the health savings account. But at age 65, you cannot put any more money in the account. What if you still have children under the age of 26? On a health insurance plan with you? Yeah, it's but uh, it's that's a different different question, I guess. Because but, I will. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different issue, Tom. Yeah. I'm sorry. Tangent, tangent. We'll 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 go back to where the rest of the world is. Uh, but uh, you can't. It's the based off the holder. Actually, so if the holder. I was, holder just, I was just doing the math. I will too, if it makes you. Feel <laughs> I, I'm I'm glad we're in that that boat together, Chris. But that's think, interesting. So I mean, not to sound too politically naive. But what's the downside to letting everyone have an HSA and really just raising the limits? Why would why would someone oppose that other than maybe it's fewer taxes going to the government because that's pre-tax money? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. It's uh, just it's less taxes less coming tax. to the government, but I I think it would it would broaden the usage of that um, that plan. So if a listener has an option between a plan with an HSA and a plan without an HSA, why would they not want the plan with the HSA? Well, one caveat on the flux is that um, if if you choose to put in, let's say, $1,000 into your flux, that money is available from day one, even though the company has not payroll deducted it yet. Whereas the HSA, the money has to be in the account um, before you can use it. That's really the only um, no, my question is a little different. It's it, forget the flex. Okay, just the HSA. So, for instance, in our group, we offer our employees. We've got several different plans, and we are actually self-insured now um, through a third-party administrator. So, we have one plan where you pay the higher uh, insurance, but then you have lower deductible, or you can have the HSA and have a higher deductible. Yes. How I think do you make that decision? Correct. In a, in a current high deductible plan that's eligible for a health savings account, you cannot have a first dollar benefit except for preventative services. So what I mean by first dollar benefit is that you would have a copay, an office visit copay, or a drug card copay. So in most of the employee meetings where we're introducing a health savings account, the biggest question that comes back is on prescriptions. Mm-hmm. So you have to meet your deductible before the prescription can be paid for. So if you have a $300 prescription in, um, in a regular plan, you would may have a copay. Here, you have to pay the $300 to get to your deductible. To get to your deductible. <clears throat> and that's, where again, where the HSA comes in, where you right. can fund it through your HSA. But that's one of the downsides of having an HSA plan, whereas in a regular plan, you can have first dollar benefit. Well, just listening to you talk, Kevin, you've convinced me that I'm in the right field. I shouldn't be in insurance. (laughs) Medicine's better for me. But that's probably a good segue. You've been doing this a couple of years. Um, Where do you see this going or where do you where do you see that it's come and how has it evolved the course of your career? Yeah. When I first started, it was all about um, getting access to the doctor, making it affordable to go see your primary care physician. When I started, um, the Blue Cross Blue Shield of Indiana was pushing $5 office visit copays. Make it affordable to go see your doctor to prevent um, and find anything that would lead to a, to a bigger expense. Um, that has shifted through that time to, to now high deductible plans right. <laughs> and putting money away and and becoming more of a consumer um, versus just going to the doctor every time something um, potentially might be 
um, wrong. So it's gone to a shift of trying um, to, to go to your doctor versus Don't maybe go. being a consumer first. But part of our issue is access. Mm. Um, getting into a primary care physician can, can in some ways, be, can be lengthy. Um, and so that is part of the pushback as well um, is access right now. But I, where, where I do see this going, and this is a big, and you guys are both in the industry, is that most primary care physicians are paid transactionally. How many people can I see? Yes. Uh, they're they're I, incented I get, to get more people in Their incentive is transactional. And I think you'll see a shift to more quality, outcome-based. Um, a physician would be paid more if uh, a patient, if they take them maybe from poor health to medium health or from medium health to very good health. And then um, so it's the quality of care. And I think most primary care physicians would say they got into medicine to be a doctor to, to, to um, manage that particular patient versus the transactional how they're paid today. And I think that'll be a big shift in our business here in the next five to 10 years. There is so much talk about paying based on quality, but nobody has yet figured out how to do that. Something interesting, we did just do um, an interview with the head of um, Solidarity HealthShare when uh, Andrew and I were in Dallas in September. And one of the things they do is they actually reduce the fee if their patients make certain body mass index, cholesterol, um, different measures of health, hemoglobin A1C for diabetics. So they put the the um, onus on the patient or the responsibility, and then that they benefit. So I wonder if anything like that could ever come to health insurance. I would I would hope so. I mean, I, I really do. I think some of the transactional thing is, again, based on a malpractice um, things that doctors have to deal with on a, on a constant basis. The, the price of malpractice insurance has skyrocketed um, based on the, the number of lawsuits that have come up. So I hope that we do get back to patient-centered um, uh, patient center healthcare versus more of this transactional piece. But it is, if you think about it, it's a very odd relationship and transaction that really I can't think of one in any other part of the economy that mimics it. So you have a, a patient who is a customer, so to speak, of the physician, but then there's a third party who isn't in the room. Right. That's the person actually paying the bill. So two people are deciding what to do, but the person who's going to write the check isn't there. Right. And so the physician isn't necessarily incented to behave in an economically favorable way. The patient all too often isn't incented to behave that way. It is a really, it's a mixed bag of sort of incentives and disincentives, isn't it? I agree. Now, there's something that I've heard of called indemnity type insurance. Can you explain what this is and why it might be good or not good? Yeah, I think that, you know, when um, when health insurance first started, it, they were indemnity plans. You, you pay a deductible, mm-hmm. you pay a coinsurance, and then that's it. So you may have a thousand dollar deductible, eighty twenty plan, and that's all the coverage you have. So the office visits become more of your um, uh, that person's responsibility to pay for those, and, and really indemnity plans are there to um, help with large ca- catastrophic. Can you plans. define what indemnity plan means? Um, I would say that it doesn't. In- involve networks at all. It is it is just a um, an insurance stop-loss policy that protects you from catastrophic. Um, so an indemnity plan doesn't cover anything except catastrophic? It can cover prescriptions, but you're going to pay the deductible first and then pay um, a coinsurance without any kind of networks involved. Okay. My thick head is still confused. Let's see. How can I ask this? And what I read about indemnity plans, it was a plan where the insurance company gave you the money as the patient, and then the patient would pay you know, the physician or the hospital out of that money. In an effort to try to incent the patient to make wise economic choices. Yes. Hmm. 
That's not what's available uh, today, Kevin? No, I have not. So there's no plan like that I'm anymore? Not seen, no, not here in Indiana for sure. Okay, because I'm, I'm thinking, might there be a plan somewhere that incentivizes patients to shop for the best? Yeah, but you know what's interesting? We hear that a lot in the political realm. We're going to make price transparency, and we're going to make people good consumers of health care. But I know my patients are so frustrated. Try to call a hospital yes. and find out what is my bill going to be no to have idea. my yeah, knee good luck with on. that. No yeah, idea. And it, I don't think that exists in any other segment of the economy. It doesn't. Uh, it's price transparency doesn't exist. And we need to take a break before our last segment. We'll be back with more on Dr. Doctor. We're back with the final segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor with the answer to the medical trivia question I posed. So there was a little bit of Greek, a little bit of Latin, something about epinephrine. So the final question is, what is the other name for epinephrine and where in the human body is it naturally produced? We really should have a jingle that plays right here. we got to work on that. We do have a jingle that plays here. Right in the middle. So people are so dying of suspense. Oh, no, we've got the habanera uh, playing by Bizet. It's it's a great one. I love it. I chose it. Right, right, Andrea? That's right. Yeah, she, she's on the other side of the wall here, but she's the brains of the operation. So anyway, the other name for epinephrine is, Chris, you know this. It makes me want to run when I think about it. Yes, adrenaline. It's what's <laughs> released with the fight or flight response in humans. So epinephrine comes from epinephros, epi on top of the nephros. What's a nephrologist take care of? Your kidneys. So epinephrine is made on top of the kidney in what? Adrenaline, the adrenal gland. So now you know it. The names actually do mean something. They're not just gobbledygook. And we use epinephrine. We're in EpiPens for people with you know bad reactions, uh, allergies often to uh, nuts or, or bee stings. But that's the importance there. Thanks so, again, Tom, for trivia that's not trivial. da 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 Okay, now back to Kevin Burns and you, Chris, have a great question for Kevin. Kevin, it's time to it's time to to school us a little. So you've been doing this a long time. You are extremely knowledgeable in this complex area that we call health insurance. What are some of the things that you see uh, employees of the plans that that you're using? What shocks them? What, what mistakes do they make? What do you wish that you could make them understand uh, in advance? Yeah, I think it's engagement in both uh, with their physician, with their pharmacy. I think pharmacy is a, is a big uh, issue right now of understanding and navigating the um, the intricacies of pharmacy right now. Do you think people underestimate how much money they're going to spend on uh, medications? Most definitely. And so when I talk about engagement with employees, we're talking about when it, uh, when a doctor or physician says, well, I'm going to um, I'm going to prescribe you this medication. It, the, if there was ever a time to ask the doctor why, what, what's this drug about, how can I research it, all of those different things to, to be very uh, educated about um, not only prescriptions but uh, maybe services they're getting um, from a hospital or from a, a, a specialist. I mean, if there's ever a time to be engaged in, in your health care, it's, it's today. It's a very complex, very – very clunky and very can be very frustrating industry. So what about on the front end? Uh, I would kind of think of that as the back end. What about when when employees, maybe the employee is getting his very first job, maybe it's a young married couple. What, what do they need to know that you see that they tend not to know about health insurance? Yeah, I think it's very important to understand some of those terminologies <laughs> that we just talked about. But what is a deductible? Yeah. When does it come into play? What is a copay? Does it apply towards your out-of-pocket maximum? In um, uh, preventative, all plans across the country are 100% paid on preventative. What does that mean? What can I, what can I, um, what can I go and see and get it, it paid at 100%? So it's it's really understanding some of that terminology and. We were all 21 at one time, and I'm certainly didn't. I probably did not ask what a copay was at that time because then we were invincible. Correct, <laughs> but I think it's very, and that's what we try to do when we educate um, our clients, their employees, is really try to educate them on the plan. All this money that an employer is spending, um, if the employees don't understand it and know how to use it, um, then it can be wasted money. Kevin, 
if I were listening right now, I would want to know where can I see that list of 100% covered preventable preventive services. Yes, there, it's actually listed out on uh, healthcare.org. It's it's uh, every plan healthcare.org has, or .gov. I, I'm sorry, .gov. Healthcare.gov. It's, it's the link is out there. Okay. If you just go into that um, site and you put in search wellness. It'll pop up everything that is uh, eligible for 100%. Excellent. And in the couple of minutes we have left, uh, could you look into your crystal ball and help us understand, uh, given the political climate, what's 2019, 2020 look like changes for health insurance? Yeah, I I think with the current administration, you're not going to see much happening with uh, uh, the individual marketplace and or the small group market that is controlled by the Affordable Care Act right now. I think a lot of the legislation is concerning health savings accounts, uh, concerning pharmacy. There is three pieces of legislation on one-payer systems. And again, as long as the current president's in in office, um, he's not going to sign off on a bill like that. But I think they're preparing, the Democrats are preparing, that if they were to get the White House and And from a a Catholic perspective, is a single-payer system... Good, bad, or neutral? Well, I'm not going to be neutral on it. I think it's a bad thing. Anytime the government is in control of uh, a program like this, I just think it it, it will not go the right way. I, I believe healthcare is is regional. It's community. It's 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 a smaller piece than than the federal government. It, living here in Fort Wayne, healthcare is different than living in New York City. So I think it's it's neighborhood based. It's it's here community. In other words, so, one size fits no one. That, that's correct. <laughs> and so I just can't imagine a single payer system that could that could do that. But that really does sound like a Catholic social teaching the principle of subsidiarity. Know, of subsidiarity that healthcare is a, something that happens at home locally, not not at a national level. Well, Kevin, we can't thank you enough for sharing your, your wisdom and your experience with us on such an important and confusing topic as, as health insurance. And, you know, that brings up another topic, and that is, from the Catholic perspective, most of these health insurance companies are for-profit. Is that a good thing? And would health insurance companies really look out more for the, the insured person if they were not for-profit? It's, it's a fantastic question um, because we know that, you know, for-profit insurance companies have to answer to shareholders. They might not have the same interest as interest in the community as it may be a not-for-profit uh, insurance company. But also uh, a for-profit has access to capital mm-hmm. that keeps things from a technology standpoint. And a solvency perspective. And a solvency, too. Yeah. correct. So a lot of um, not-for-profit struggle in maintaining, you know, enough risk pool to be able to handle okay. um, potential large claimants. And then we started in the last segment to mention something called transparency with the cost. How is health insurance, if at all, related to the fact that you can't figure out what something costs? I couldn't tell you what I do costs any anything. I just have to look down the sheet and see what different insurance companies pay. What is is there a way out of this? Quagmire of cost hidden. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I think it's the biggest um, uh, the the biggest hurdle that our industry has is is helping employees understand transparency and what the cost of healthcare really is. Um, and so. I don't have the answer on this one because right now it's the, the system we have has to be overhauled to be able to get to the place where we're we're in a transparent uh, What model. will it take? What would have to happen? Do we have to, quote, hit bottom like the alcoholic? Or maybe said in a different way, what what's the Uber of health insurance? What's the disruptor that's out there that's going to change the way we we think of health insurance or the way maybe we shouldn't say the word insurance. The way we pay for medical care. Yeah, yeah. I, it's um, I, I, it's going to have to be at the local level, and the uh, it has to come. I believe from the hospital systems are mm-hmm. going to have to take the lead on providing uh, transparency cost. 
And one thing I think patients deserve to know about that we struggle with in physician offices is something called prior authorizations. Can, can you mention what does that mean practically? Yeah, it's a practice within the insurance uh, companies um, where an individual may have a prescription or a service that they need to call the insurance company to get it approved. And this is a growing trend in our industry. It really feels newer. Um, yeah, in the last I, I think of in years. The, you know we used to say if you're going into the hospital, you needed to get prior authorization to go mm-hmm. into the hospital. Now we have prior authorizations not just for inpatient stays, outpatient stays, MRIs, prescriptions, uh, specialty drugs. So it's it's definitely grown. It's it's the one area we spend a lot of time in our office mm-hmm. on where an employee maybe has been on a prescription. We changed uh, insurance carriers, and now that new insurance carrier mm-hmm. won't approve it because they don't have the prior authorization. So it's a it's a whole um, different process of getting yeah. that particular drug again approved. Yeah. It, I mean, it is. I know in my just, office it is not at all uncommon for one of our medical assistants to spend 45 minutes on hold to get a prior authorization for company A. Company B may have an online system that's completely electronic, whereas company A has an on-hold system. And your employees and you are not reimbursed for that extra time. And then, of course, the patient is angry because he or she's not getting the thing that they wanted that they believe is covered, and it said that it was covered, but uh, it, it feels like an onerous sort of method to slow the system down. Yes. I wish we could go more into it. We're going to have to have you back, Kevin. There's so much more to cover here, but we've come up to the end of another show. We thank you listeners very much for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. If you want to get more information on the CMA, you can find us at our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening to Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. We'll be signing off until next week. Remember, your medical decisions may have profound consequences. Choose wisely. Choose Catholic. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor and in the Redeemer Radio app.